Welcome to Volume 6 of Jeeves and the Fetal Spirit. Chapter 12 I endeavoured to soothe her with a kindly pat on the top knot. Jeeves will be back in a moment, I said, and will doubtless put everything right with one wave of his magic wand. Tell me, my fluttering old aspen, what seems to be the trouble? She gulped like a stricken bullpup. I'd rarely seen her in a more jittery mood. It's Tom! The uncle of that name? How many Toms do you think there are in this joint, for God's sake? She said, with a return of her normal forcefulness. Yes, Thomas Portolorian Travers, my husband. Portolorian, I said, a little shocked. He came pottering into my room just now. I nodded intelligently. I remembered that he had spoken of having done so. It was on that occasion, you recall, he had observed her pressing her hand to the top of her head. I see, yes, so far I follow you. Seen your room. Discovered sitting you. Enter Uncle Tom pottering. What then? She was silent for a space. Then she spoke in what, for her, was a hushed voice. That is to say, while rattling the vases on the mantelpiece, it did not bring plaster down from the ceiling. I'd better tell you the whole thing. Do, old ancestor. Nothing like getting it off your chest, or whatever it is. She gulped like another stricken bullpup. It's not a long story. Good, I said, for the hour was late, and I'd had a busy day. You remember when we were talking after you got here this evening? Bertie, you revolting object. She said, deviating momentarily from the main thread. That moustache of yours is the most obscene thing I've ever seen outside of a nightmare. It seems to take one straight into another and dreadful world. What made you commit this rash act? I tut-tutted a bit austerely. Never mind my moustache, old flesh and blood. You leave it alone, and it'll leave you alone. When we were talking this evening, you were saying... She accepted this rebuke with a moody nod. Yes, I mustn't get sidetracked. I must stick to the point. Like glue. When we were talking this evening, you said you wondered how I had managed to get Tom to cough up the price of that Daphne Dolores Moorhead cereal. You remember? I do. I'm still wondering. Well, it's quite simple. I didn't. What? Tom didn't contribute a penny. Then how? I'll tell you how. I pawned my pearl necklace. I gazed at her. Well, I suppose awestruck would be the word. Acquaintance with this woman dating from the days when I was an infant, mewling and puking in my nurse's arms, if you'll excuse the expression, had left me with the feeling that her guiding model in life was anything goes. But this seemed pretty advanced stuff, even for one to whom the sky had always been the limit. Pawned it, I said. Yes, pawned it. Hocked it, you mean. Popped it. Put it up the spout. That's right. The only thing to do. I had to have that cereal in order to salt the mine. And Tom absolutely refused to give me so much as a fiver to slake the thirst for gold of that blood-sucking moorhead. Nonsense, nonsense, he kept saying. Quite out of the question. Quite out of the question. So I slipped up to London and took the necklace to Aspinall's and told them to make a replica and then went to the pawnbrokers. Well, when I say pawnbrokers, that's a figure of speech. My fellow was of much higher class. More of a money lender, you would call him. I whistled a bar or two. 
Then that thing I picked up for you this morning was a dud. Cultured stuff. Golly, I said. You ants do live. I hesitated. I was loath to bruise that gentle spirit, especially at a moment when she was worried about something, but it seemed to me a nephew's duty to point out the snag. And when... I'm afraid this is going to spoil your day, but what happens when Uncle Tom finds out? That's exactly the trouble. I thought it might be. She gulped like a third-stricken bullpup. If it hadn't been for a foul bit of bad luck, he wouldn't have found out in a million years. I don't suppose Tom, bless him, would know the difference between Kohanur and something from Woolworths. I saw a point. Uncle Tom, as I have indicated, is a red-hot collector of old silver. There's nothing you could teach him about sconces and foliation and scrolls and ribbon reeds. But jewellery is to him, as to most of the male sex, a sealed book. But he's going to find out tomorrow evening, and I'll tell you why. I told you he came to my room just now. Well, we had been kidding back and forth for a few moments, all very pleasant and matey, when he suddenly... Oh, my God! I administered another sympathetic pat to the bean. Pull yourself together, old relative. What did he suddenly do? He suddenly told me this Lord Sitcup who is coming tomorrow is not only an old silver hound, but an expert on jewellery. And he was going to ask him while here to take a look at my necklace. Gosh! He said he had often had a suspicion that the bandits who sold it to him had taken advantage of his innocence and charged him too much. Sidcup, he said, would be able to put him straight about it. Golly! Gosh is right, and so is golly. Then that's why you cut the top of your head and tottered. That's why. How long do you suppose it will take this fiend in human shape to see through the dud string of pearls and spill the beans? Just about ten seconds, if not less. And then what? Can you blame me for tottering? I certainly couldn't. In her place, I would have tottered myself, and tottered like nobody's business. A far duller man than Bertram Worcester would have been able to appreciate that this aunt who sat before me, clutching feverishly at her perm, was an aunt who was in the dickens of a spot. A crisis had been precipitated in her affairs, which threatened, unless some pretty adroit staff work was pulled off by her friends and well-wishers, to put the home right plumb spang in the melting pot. I made a rather close study of the married state, and I know what happens when one turtle dove gets the goods of the other turtle dove. Bingo Little has often told me that if Mrs. Bingo had managed to get on him some of the things it seemed likely she was going to get, the moon would return to blood and civilization shaken from its foundations. I've heard much the same thing from other husbands of my acquaintance, and of course similar upheavals occur when it is the little woman who is caught bending. Always up till now, Aunt Dahlia had been the boss of Brinkley Court, maintaining a strong centralised government. But let Uncle Tom discover that she had pawned her pearl necklace in order to buy a serial story for what, for some reason, he always alluded to as Madame's Nightshirt, a periodical which, from the very start, he had never liked, and she would be in much the same position as one of those monarchs or dictators who wake up one morning to find the populace had risen against them and is saying it with bombs. Uncle Tom is a kindly old bimbo, but even kindly old bimbos can make themselves dashed unpleasant when the conditions are right. He gads, I said, fingering the chin. This is not so good. 
It's the end of all things. You say this sidcap bird will be here tomorrow. Doesn't give you much time to put your affairs in order. No wonder you're sending out an SOS for Jeeves. Only he can save me from the fate that is worse than death. But can even Jeeves adjust matters here? I'm banking on him. After all, he's a hell of an adjuster. True. He got you out of some deepish holes in his time. Quite. I often say there's none like him. None. He should be with us any moment now. He stepped out to get me a tankard of the old familiar juice. Her eyes gleam with a strange light. Fine, then I get at it first. I patted her hand. Of course, I said, of course. You may take that as read. You don't find Bertram Worcester hogging the drink supply when a suffering aunt is at his sides with her tongue hanging out. Your need is greater than mine, as whoever it was said to the stretcher case. Ah! Jeeves had come in bearing the elixir, not a split second before we were ready for it. I took the beaker from him and offered it to the aged relative with a courteous gesture. With a brief mud in your eye, she drank deeply. I then finished what was left at a gulp. Oh, Jeeves, I said. Sir. Lend me your ears. Very good, sir. It had needed but a glance at my late father's sister to tell me that if there was going to be any lucid exposition of the res, I was the one who would have to attend to it. After moistening her clay, she had relapsed into a sort of frozen coma and showing a disposition to pant like a heart when heated in the chase. Nor was this to be wondered at. Few women would have been in vivacious mood had fate touched off beneath them a similar stick of trinitrotoluene. I imagine her emotions after Uncle Tom had said his say must have been much the same nature as those she had no doubt frequently experienced in her hunting days when her steed, having bucked her from the saddle, had proceeded to roll upon her. And while the blushful hippocrene of which she had just imbibed her share had been robust and full of inner meaning, it had obviously merely scratched the surface. A rather tight place has popped up out of a trap, Jeeves, and we should be glad of your counsel and advice. This is a position. Aunt Dahlia has a pearl necklace, the Christmas gift of Uncle Tom, whose second name I'll bet you didn't know is Portarlington, the one you picked up at Aspinall's this morning. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Well, this is where the plot thickens. It isn't a pearl necklace, if I make my meaning clear. For reasons into which we need not go, she put the Uncle Tom Merry Christmas one up the spout. What is now in her possession is an imitation of little or no intrinsic value. Yes, sir. You don't seem amazed. No, sir. I became aware of the fact when I saw the necklace this morning. I perceived at once that what had been given to me was a cultured replica. Good Lord! Was it that easy to spot? Oh, no, sir. I have no doubt that it would deceive the untutored eye, but I spent some months at one time studying jewellery under the auspices of a cousin of mine who is in the trade. The genuine pearl has no core. No what? Core, sir, in its interior. A cultured pearl differs from the real one in this respect, that it is the result of introducing into the oyster a foreign substance designed to irritate it and induce it to coat the substance with layer upon layer of knacker. Nature's own irritant is invariably so small as to be invisible. But the core in the cultured imitation can be discerned, as a rule merely by holding the cultured pearl up before a strong light. This is what I did in the matter of Mrs. Travers' necklace. I had no need of the endoscope. The what? 
Endoscope, sir. An instrument which enables one to peer into the cultured pearl's interior and discern the core. I was conscious of a passing pang for the oyster world, feeling, and I think correctly, that life for these unfortunate bivalves must be one damn thing after another, but my principal emotion was one of astonishment. Great Scott, Jeeves, do you know everything? Oh, no, sir. It just happens that jewellery is something of a hobby of mine. With diamonds, of course, the test would be different. One might ascertain the genuineness of a diamond, for example, by taking a sapphire-point phonograph needle, which is, as you are no doubt aware, corundum, having a hardness of nine, and trying to make a small test scratch on the underside of the suspected stone. A genuine diamond, I need hardly remind you, is the only substance with a hardness of ten. Mo-scale hardness. Most of the hard objects we see about us are approximately seven in the hardness scale. But you were saying, sir. I was still blinking a bit. When Jeeves gets going nicely, he often has this effect on me. With a strong effort, I pulled myself together and was able to continue. Well, that's the nub of the story, I said. And Dolly's necklace, the one now in her possession, is, as your trained senses told you, a seething mass of cause, and not worth the paper it's written on, right? Well, here's the point. If no complications had been introduced into the scenario, all would be well, because Uncle Tom couldn't tell the difference between a real necklace and an imitation one if he tried for months. But a whale of a complication has been introduced. A pal of his is coming tomorrow to look at the thing, and this pal, like you, is an expert on jewellery. You see what will happen the moment he cocks an eye at the worthless substitute. Exposure, ruin, desolation, and despair. Uncle Tom, learning the truth, will blow his top, and Aunt Dahlia's prestige will be down the wines and spirits. Do you get me, Jeeves? Yes, sir. Then let us have your views. It is disturbing, sir. I wouldn't have thought that anything would have been able to rouse that crushed aunt from a trance, but this did the trick. She came up like a rocketing pheasant from a chair into which she'd been slumped. Disturbing! What a word to use! I sympathized with her distress, but checked her with an upraised hand. Please, old relative, yes, Jeeves, it is, as you say, a bit on the disturbing side, but one feels that you will probably have something constructed to place before the board. We shall be glad to hear your solution. He allowed a muscle at the side of his mouth to twitch regretfully. With a problem of this magnitude, sir, I fear I am not able to provide a solution offhand. If I may use the expression, I should require to give the matter some thought. Perhaps if I might be permitted to pace the corridor for a while. Certainly, Jeeves, pace the corridors all you wish. Thank you, sir. I shall hope to return shortly with some suggestion which will give satisfaction. I closed the door behind him and turned to the aged R, who, her face bright purple, was still muttering, Disturbing! I know how you feel, old flesh and blood, I said. I ought to have warned you that Jeeves never leaps about and rolls the eyes when you spring something sensational on him, preferring to preserve the calm impassivity of a stuffed frog. Disturbing! I have grown not to mind this much myself, though occasionally, as I was about to do tonight, administering a rather stern rebuke, for experience has taught me. Disturbing! For God's sake! Disturbing! I know, I know. That manner of his does afflict the nerve centres quite a bit, does it not? But as I was saying, experience has taught me that there always follows some ripe solution of whatever the problem may be. As the fellow said, if stuffed frogs come, 
can ripe solutions be far behind? She sat up. I could see the light of hope dawning in her eyes. You really think he will find the way? I'm convinced of it. He always finds the way. I wish I had a quid for every way he has ever found since first he started to serve under the Worcester banner. Remember how he enabled me to put it across Roderick's boat at Totley Towers? He did, didn't he? He certainly did. One moment Spurred was a dark menace, and the next a mere blob of jelly with all his fangs removed, groveling at my feet. You can rely implicitly on Jeeves. Ah, I said as the door opened. Here he comes, his head sticking out the back and his eyes shining with intelligence and whatnot. You ought to have thought of something by now, right, Jeeves? Yes, sir. I knew it. I was saying a moment ago, you always find the way. Well, let's have it. There is a method by means of which Mrs. Travers can be extricated from her sea of troubles. Shakespeare. I didn't know why he was addressing me as Shakespeare, but I motioned him to continue. Proceed, Jeeves. He did so, turning down to Dahlia, who was gazing at him like a bear about to receive a bun. If, as Mr. Worcester has told me, madam, this jewellery expert is to be with us shortly, it would seem that your best plan is to cause the necklace to disappear before he arrives, if I make my meaning clear, madam. He went on in response to a query from the sizzling woman as to whether he supposed her to be a bally conjurer. What I had in mind was something in the nature of a burglarious entry, as a result of which the piece of jewellery would be abstracted. You will readily see, madam, that if the gentleman coming to examine the necklace finds that there is no necklace for him to examine. He won't be able to examine it! Precisely, madam. Rem acu tetragisti. I shook the lemon. I had expected something better than this. It seemed to me that the great brain had at last come unglued and this saddened me. But jeez, I said gently, where do you get your burglar? From the army and navy stores? I was thinking that you might consent to undertake the task, sir. Me? "'Gosh, yes,' said Aunt Dahlia, her dial lighting up like a stage moon. "'How right you are, Jeeves. "'You wouldn't mind doing a little thing like that for me, would you, Bertie? "'Of course you wouldn't. "'You've grasped the idea. "'You get a ladder, prop it up against my window, "'pop in, pinch the necklace, and streak off with it. "'And tomorrow I go to Tom in floods of tears and say, "'Tom, my pearls, they've gone!' Some low bounder sneaked in over the night and snitched them as I slept. That's the idea, isn't it, Jeeves? Precisely, madam. It would be a simple task for Mr. Worcester. I noticed that since my last visit to Brinkley Court, the bars which protected the windows have been removed. Yes, I had done that after that time when we were all locked out. You remember? Very vividly, madam. So there's nothing to stop you, Bertie. Nothing but. I paused. I'd been about to say nothing but my total and absolute refusal to take on the assignment in any way, shape, or form. But I checked the words before they could pass the lips. I saw that I was exaggerating what I had supposed to be the dangers and difficulties of the enterprise. After all, I felt, there was nothing so very hazardous about it. All I had to do was procure a ladder and climb up it, a ludicrously simple feat for one of my agility and lissomeness. A nuisance, of course, having to turn out at this time of night, but I was quite prepared to do so in order to bring the roses back to the cheeks of a woman who, in my bib and cradle days, had frequently dandled me on a knee, 
not to mention saving my life on one occasion when I had half swallowed a rubber comforter. Nothing at all, I replied cordially, nothing whatsoever. You provide the necklace and I'll do the rest. Which is your room? The last one on the left. Right. Left, fool. I'll be going there now, so as to be in readiness. Golly, Jeeves, you've taken a weight off my mind. I feel like a new woman. You won't mind if you hear me singing about the house. Not at all, madam. I shall probably start first thing tomorrow. Any time that suits you, madam. He closed the door behind her with an indulgent smile, or something as nearly resembling a smile as he ever allows to appear on his map. One is glad to see Mrs. Trapper so happy, sir. Yes, you certainly bucked her up like a tonic. No difficulty about finding a ladder, I take it. Oh, no, sir. I chanced to observe one outside the tool shed, by the kitchen garden. So did I, now that you mention it. No doubt it's still there. Well, let's go. If it were, what's that expression of yours? If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly, sir. That's right. No sense in standing humming and hawing. No, sir. There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Exactly, I said. I couldn't have put it better myself. The venture went with gratifying smoothness. I found the latter by the tool shed, as foreshadowed, and lugged it across country to the desired spot. I propped it up. I climbed it. In next to no time, I was through the window and moving suddenly across the floor. Well, not so dashed silently, as a matter of fact, because I collided with a table which happened to be in the fairway and upset it with quite a bit of noise. Who's there? Asked a voice from the darkness in a startled sort of way. This tickled me. Ah, I said to myself amusedly, Aunt Dahlia throwing herself into a part and giving the thing just the touch it needed to make the box office. What an artist, I felt. Then it said, Who's there again? And it was as though a well-iced hand had been laid upon my heart, because the voice was not the voice of my ruddy aunt. It was the voice of Florence Cray. The next moment, light flooded the apartment, and there she was, sitting up in bed, in a pink boudoir cap. Chapter 13 I don't know if you happen to be familiar with a poem called The Charge of the Light Brigade by that bird Tennyson, whom Jeeves had mentioned when speaking of the fellow whose strength was as the strength of ten. It is, I believe, fairly well known, and I used to have to recite it at the age of seven or thereabouts when summoned to the drawing-room to give visitors a glimpse of the young Worcester. Bertie recites so nicely, my mother used to say, getting her facts twisted. I may mention, because I practically always fluffed my lines, and after trying to duck for safety and being hauled back, I would snap into it. And very unpleasant the whole thing was. So people have told me. Well, what I was about to say, when I rambled off a bit on the subject of the dear old days, was that though in the course of the years most of the poem of which I speak has slid from my memory, I still recall its punchline. The thing goes, as you probably know, Tum tiddle, umpity pum, tum tiddle, umpity pum, tum tiddle, umpity pum. And this brought you to the snipperoo of the payoff, which was... Someone had blundered. I always remember that bit. The reason I bring it up now is that as I stood blinking at this pink boudoir-capped girl, I was feeling just as those light brigade fellows must have felt. Obviously, someone had blundered here, and that someone was Aunt Dahlia. 
why she should have told me that her window was the last one on the left when the last one on the left was what it was anything but was more than I can imagine. One sought in vain for what Stilton Cheesewright would have called the ulterior motive. However, it's hopeless to try to fathom the mental processes of ants. And anyway, this was no time for idle speculation. The first thing the man of sensibility has to do when arriving like a sack of coals in a girl's bedroom in the small hours is to get the conversation going. And it was this that I now address myself. Nothing is worse on these occasions than the awkward pause and the embarrassed silence. Oh, hello, I said, as brightly and cheerily as I could manage. I say I'm most frightfully sorry to pop in like this at a moment when you are doubtless knitting up the reveled sleeve of care, but I went for a breather in the garden and found I was locked out. So I thought my best plan was not to rouse the house, but to nip in through the first open window. You know how it is when you rouse the house. They don't like it. I would have spoken further, developing the theme, for it seemed to me that I was on the right line. So much better, I mean to say, than affecting to be walking in my sleep. All that where-am-I stuff, I mean. Too damn silly. But she suddenly gave me one of those rippling laughs of hers. Oh, Bertie, she said, and not mark you with that sort of weary fed-upness with which girls generally say, oh, Bertie, to me. What a romantic you are. Eh? She rippled again. It was a relief, of course, to find that she did not propose to yell for help and all that sort of thing. But I must say I found this mirth a bit difficult to cope with. You probably had the same experience yourself, listening to people guffawing like hyenas and not having the foggiest idea what the joke is. It makes you feel at a disadvantage. She was looking at me in an odd kind of way, as if at some child for whom, while conceding that it had water on the brain, she felt fondness. Isn't this just the sort of thing you would do? She said. I told you I was no longer engaged to Darcy Cheesewright, and you had to fly to me. You couldn't wait till the morning, could you? I suppose you had some sort of idea of kissing me softly while I slept. I leapt perhaps six inches in the direction of the ceiling. I was appalled, and I think not unjustifiably so. I mean, dash it. A fellow who's always prided himself on the scrupulous delicacy of his relations with the other sex doesn't like to have it supposed that he deliberately shins up ladders at one in the morning in order to kiss girls while they're asleep. Good Lord, no, I said, replacing the chair which I had knocked over in my agitation. Nothing further from my thoughts. I take it your attention happened to wander for a moment when I was outlining the facts just now. What I was saying, only you weren't listening, was that I went out for a breather into the garden and found I was locked out, and she rippled once more. That looking fondly at idiot child expression on her face had become intensified. You don't think I'm angry, do you, Bertie? Of course I'm not. I'm very, very touched. Kiss me, Bertie. Well, one has to be civil. I did as directed, but with an uneasy feeling that this was a bit above the odds. I didn't at all like the general trend of affairs, the whole thing seeming to me to be coming far too French. When I broke out of the clinch and stepped back, I found the expression on her face had changed. She was now regarding me in a speculative sort of way, if you know what I mean, rather like a governess taking a gander and a new pupil. Mother's quite wrong, she said. Mother? Your Aunt Agatha. This surprised me. You call her mother? Oh, well, okay, if you like it. Up to you, of course. What was she wrong about? Oh, you. She keeps insisting that you're a vapid, irreflective nitwit, who ought years ago to have been put in some good mental home. I drew myself haughtily, 
couple or less to the quick. So this was how the woman was accustomed to shoot off her bally head about me in my absence, was it? A pretty state of affairs. The woman, I'll trouble you, whose repulsive son, Thomas, I had for years practically nursed in my bosom. That is to say, when he passed through London, on his way back to school, I put him up at my residence, and not only fed him luxuriously, but, with no thought of self, took him to the old Vic and Madame Tussauds. Was there no gratitude left in the world? She does, does she? She's awfully amusing about you. Amusing, eh? It was she who said that you had a brain like a peahen. Here, of course, if I had wished to take it, was an admirable opportunity to go into this matter of peahens and ascertain just where they stood on the roster of feathered friends as regarding the IQ, but I let it go. She adjusted the boudoir cap, which the recent embrace had tilted a bit to one side. She was still looking at me in a speculative sort of way. She says you're a guffin. A what? A guffin. I don't understand you. It's one of those old-fashioned expressions. What she meant, I think, was she considered you a wet smack and a total loss. But I told her she was quite mistaken, and there's a lot more in you than people suspect. I realized that when I found you in that bookshop that day buying Spindrift. Do you remember? I had not forgot the incident. The whole thing had been one of those unfortunate misunderstandings. I'd promised Jeeves to buy him the works of a cove in the name of Spinoza. Some kind of philosopher or something, I gathered. And the chap at the bookshop, expressing the opinion that there was no such person as Spinoza, had handed me Spindrift as being more probably what I was after. And I scarcely had grasped it when Florence came in to assume that I had purchased the thing and to autograph it for me in green ink with her fountain pen had, for her, been but the work of an instant. I knew that you were groping dimly for the light and trying to educate yourself by reading good literature that there was something lying hidden deep down in you that only needed bringing out. It would be a fascinating task, I told myself, fostering the latent potentialities of your budding mind, like watching over some timid, backward flower. I bridled, pretty considerably. Timid, backward flower, my left eyeball, I was thinking. I was on the point of saying something stinging like, Oh, yes, when she proceeded. I know I can mould you, Bertie. You want to improve yourself, and that is half the battle. What have you been reading lately? Well, what with one thing and another, my reading has been a bit cut into these last days, but I'm in the process of plugging away the thing called The Mystery of the Pink Crayfish. Her slender frame was more or less hidden beneath the bedclothes, but I got the impression that a shudder had run through it. Oh, Bertie, she said this time with something more nearly approaching the normal intonation. Well, it's dashed good, I insisted stoutly. The baronet, this Eustace Willoughby, is discovered in his library, with his head bashed in, and a look of pain came into her face. Please, she sighed. Oh, dear, she said. I'm afraid it's going to be uphill work fostering the latent potentialities of your budding mind. I wouldn't try if I were you. Give it a miss is my advice. But I hate to think of leaving you in the darkness, doing nothing but smoking and drinking at the drones club. I put her straight about this. She had her facts wrong. I also played darts. Darts? As a matter of fact, I shall very soon be this year's club champion. The event is a snip for me. Ask anybody. How can you fritter away your time like that when you might be reading T.S. Eliot? I would like to see you... 
what it was she would like to have seen me doing, she didn't say, though I presumed it was something foul and educational. For at this juncture, someone knocked on the door. It was the last contingency I'd been anticipating, and it caused my heart to leap like a salmon in the spawning season and become entangled with my front teeth. I looked at the door with what I've heard Jeeves call a wild surmise, and perspiration broke out of my brow. Florence, I noticed, seemed a bit startled too. One gathered that she hadn't expected when setting out for Brinkley Court that her bedroom was going to be such a social centre. There's a song I used to sing a good deal at one time, the refrain of Burthen, of which began with the words, Let's all go around to Maud's. Much the same sentiment appeared to be animating the guests beneath Aunt Dahlia's roof, and it was, of course, upsetting for the poor child. At one in the morning, girls lack a bit of privacy, and she couldn't have had much less privacy if she had been running a snack bar on a race course. Who's that? she cried. Me, responded a deep, resonant voice, and Florence clapped a hand to her throat, a thing I didn't know anybody ever did off stage. For the deep, resonant voice was that of G. Darcy Cheesewright. To cut the long story short, the man was in again. It was with a distinctly fevered hand that Florence reached out for a dressing gown, and in her deportment, as she hopped from between the sheets, I noted a marked suggestion of a pea on a hot shovel. She's one of those cool, calm, well-poised modern girls from whom, as a rule, you can seldom get more than a raised eyebrow. But I could see that this thing of having Stilton, a pleasant visitor at a moment when her room was all cluttered up with Worcesters, had rattled her more than slightly. What do you want? I have brought your letters. Leave them on the mat. I will not leave them on the mat. I wish to confront you in person. At this time of night, you're not coming in here. That, said Stilton crisply, is where you make your ruddy air. I am coming in there. I remember Chief saying something once about the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling and glancing from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. It was in much the same manner that Florence's eye now rolled and glanced. I could see what was disturbing her, of course. It was that old problem which always bothers chaps in mystery thrillers, viz. how to get rid of the body, in this case that of Bertram. If Stilton proposed to enter, it was essential that Bertram be replaced in storage somewhere for the time being. But the question that arose was where? There was a cupboard on the other side of the room and she nipped across and flung open the door. Quick, she hissed, and it's all rot to say you can't hiss a word that doesn't have any S's in it. She did it on her head. In here. The suggestion struck me as a good one. I popped in and she closed the door behind me. Well, actually, the fingers being nerveless, I suppose, she didn't, but left it ajar. I was able, consequently, to follow the ensuing conversation as clearly as if it had been coming over the wireless. Stilton began it. Here are your letters. He said stiffly. Thank you. She said stiffly. Don't mention it. He said stiffly. Put them on the dressing table. She said stiffly. Right ho. He said stiffly. I don't know when I've known a bigger night for stiff speakers. After a brief interval, during which I presumed he was depositing the correspondence as directed, Stilton resumed. You got my telegram. Of course I got your telegram. You noticed I have shaved my moustache. I do. What do you mean, my underhanded skullduggery? 
If you don't call it underhanded skullduggery, sneaking off to nightclubs with that louse Worcester, it will be extremely entertaining to be informed how you would describe it. You know perfectly well that all I wanted was atmosphere for my book. Ho! And don't say ho at me. I will say ho. Retorted stilt in the spirit. Your book, my foot. I don't believe there is any book. I don't believe you've ever written a book. Indeed. Well, how about Spindrift, now in its fifth edition, and soon to be translated into Scandinavian? Probably the work of that louse Gorringe. Imagine that at this coarse insult, Florence's eyes flashed fire. The voice in which she spoke certainly suggested it. Mr. Cheesewright, you've had a couple. Nothing of the kind. Then you must be insane, and I wish you would have the courtesy to take that pumpkin head of yours out of here. I rather think, though, I can't be sure that at these words Stilton ground his teeth. Certainly there was a peculiar sound, as if a coffee mill had sprung into action. The voice that filtered through to my cosy retreat quivered hoarsely. My head is not like a pumpkin. It is, too, like a pumpkin. It is not like a pumpkin at all. I have this on the authority of Bertie Worcester, who says it is more like the Dome of St. Paul's. He broke off, and there was a smacking sound. He had apparently smitten his brow. Worcester! He cried, emitting an animal snarl. I didn't come here to talk about my head. I came to talk about Worcester, that slithery servant who slinks behind chaps' backs, stealing fellows' girls from them. Worcester the homewrecker, Worcester the snake in the grass, from whom no woman is safe, Worcester the modern Don What's-His-Name. You've been conducting a clandestine intrigue with him right along. You thought you were fooling me, didn't you? You thought I didn't see through your pitiful... Your pitiful... Damn it, what's the word? Your pitiful... Uh, it's gone. I wish you would follow its excellent example. Subterfuges. I knew I'd get it. Do you think I didn't see through your pitiful subterfuges? All that bilge about wanting me to grow a mustache. Do you think I'm not onto it that the whole of that mustache sequence was just a ruse to enable you to break it off with me and switch over to that grass snake Worcester? How can I get rid of this cheese, right? You said to yourself. Ha, I have it, you said to yourself. Tell him he's got to grow a mustache. He'll say, like hell, he'll grow any bally mustache, and then I'll say, Ho! Oh, you won't, won't you? All right, then. It's all over between us. That'll fix it. Must have been a nasty shock to you when I yielded to your request. Upset your plans quite a bit, I imagine. You hadn't bargained on that, had you? Florence spoke in a voice that would have frozen an Eskimo. The door is behind you, Mr. Cheesewright. It opens if you turn the handle. He came right back at her. Never mind the door. I'm talking about you and that leper Worcester. I suppose you will now hitch onto him or what's left of him after I've finished stepping on his face. Am I right? You are. Is it your intention to marry that human gumboil? It is. Ho! Well, I don't know how you would have behaved in my place, hearing these words and realizing for the first time that the evil had spread as far as this. You would probably have started violently as I did. 
No doubt I ought to have spotted the impending doom, but for some reason or other, possibly because I was devoting so much thought to Stilton, I hadn't. This abrupt announcement of my betrothal to a girl of whom I took the gravest view shook me to my depths, with the result, as I say, that I started violently. And, of course, the one place it's unwise to start violently, if you wish to remain unobserved and incognito, is in a cupboard in a female bedroom. What exactly it was that now rained down on me, dislodged by my sudden movement, I can't say, but I think it was a hat-box. Whatever it was, it sounded in the stilly night like coal being lowered down a chute into a cellar, and I heard a sharp exclamation. A moment later, a hand wrenched over the door, and a suffused face glared in on me as I brushed the hat-boxes, if they were hat-boxes, from my hair. Oh, said Stilton, speaking with difficulty, like a cat with a fishbone in his throat. Come on out of there, serpent, he added, attaching himself to my left ear and pulling vigorously. I emerged like a cork out of a bottle. <laughs>